Welcome to the Freak Show, fellow freaks. I'm Matthew Brockmeyer. I'm Krista Carmen. And this is Murder Coaster. Welcome back to part two of our Freeway Killer Trilogy. Last week, we brought you the tale of Patrick Kearney, a necrophile and genius with 180 IQ who managed to kill over 28 young men and boys over a 15-year period, shooting his unsuspecting victims behind the ear, then bathing the bodies and dissecting them with a hacksaw before sealing them in garbage bags and secreting them about the desert. Today, we bring you a much different killer who, though he was targeting the same victims in the same place, at the same exact time, and was also known as the Freeway Killer, he was a much, much different man. He was a sadist who drove a death van with an accomplice dressed as Darth Vader, doing magic tricks to pacify their victims. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, you heard that right. A sadist driving a death van with an accomplice dressed as Darth Vader, doing magic tricks to pacify their victims. Today, ladies and gentlemen, we present to you the horrific and repulsive and disgusting life and death of freeway killer William Bonin. William George Bonin delighted in the screams of his victims and would be described by prosecutors as the most arch-evil person who ever existed. He was born in Willimantic, Connecticut on January 8, 1947, into a hellish world of violence and abuse that would make his counterpart Patrick Kearney's tales of childhood bullying seem like a joke. William Bonin was the middle child of three sons born between his older brother, Robert Jr., and his younger brother, Paul. His father, Robert, was a World War II combat veteran who had experienced unimaginable violence and trauma, suffering what was then known as shell shock, but today is known as PTSD. There was no therapy or treatments given to returning World War II veterans. They were just expected to deal with their trauma on their own which William's father did by self-medicating with copious amounts of liquor. He would often black out and fly into drunken rages and beat everyone in his path, including young William. Okay, I want to make a quick observation that I've noticed and also have seen discussed by famed criminologist and true crime author Christopher Barry D. As we discussed last week, there was a peak of serial homicide in the 70s. And 75% of American serial killers appear between 1970 and 2000. The psychopathology of these killers is often formed when they're children, even sometimes as early as five years old. So if you look back, you see that most peak period serial killers active during the epidemic years, as they're called, were born or raised in the 1940s and 1950s. So basically, there was an entire generation of traumatized GIs raising kids in that era who were never treated for their PTSD, men who considered violence and brute force as a legitimate and accepted form of expression. 
So if serial killers are partly a product of parenting and their childhoods, we see the Second World War had an incredible impact, imparting a legitimization of violence. And Bonin's mother, Alice, had a host of issues as well. Alice was a survivor of horrendous abuse as a child, having been sexually assaulted by her own father starting at a very young age. This sexual abuse would continue into adulthood. She too self-medicated with alcohol. Robert and Alice were said to go on long drinking binges, leaving the children home alone to fend for themselves, begging food from neighbors who said they were filthy, malnourished, and dressed in dirty, tattered clothes. When the parents would return home after their benders, they'd lay in bed for days recovering while continuing to drink and building up strength for their next binge. William's father, Robert, was also a gambling addict, often losing the family's meager funds for food and clothing in underground gambling dens and often owing money to unsavory characters. And in 1950, he actually lost the family's house itself in a high-stakes poker game. Without a home, Alice sent the boys off to live with her father. Yes, the same father who had molested her for her whole life. Oh, good God. William lived with his grandfather, a convicted child molester, from the time he was three to six years old. It is believed he was sexually abused for the first time during this time period. When Alice began to suspect that her father was molesting her sons, she took William and his older brother, Robert, and sent them to a Catholic orphanage in Lowell, Massachusetts, called the Franco-American School. For young William, it was out of the frying pan and into the fire. Catholic orphanages at this time were notorious for being incredibly cruel, and the Franco-American School was no different. Children were forced to walk up and down stairs for hours on end until they collapsed from exhaustion. They had their heads dunked in sinks of ice water. They were put in stress positions and beaten by the nuns with straps, boards, and rulers. Upon entering the institution, William was immediately separated from his brother and not allowed to see him at all. Alone and vulnerable, only a child, he was sexually assaulted by both the other students and the staff. His parents never visited him once, and he began to fear they were dead. Later, William would describe this time period like this. In my life, I never had nobody to help me. My father used to beat the shit out of me. My mother never stopped him. Just put me in a boy's home where I got raped by these older guys. After three years in the orphanage in 1955, when he was eight, his mother inexplicably showed up one day and retrieved him and Robert Jr. Bonin then attended elementary school in Mansfield, Connecticut, where he was known as a juvenile delinquent who would wander away from the school to hang out in town. Bonin himself said he would leave the school because he was ashamed of how he was sexually attracted to the male teachers and other boys and was attempting to isolate himself. He was described as unkempt and aggressive. Neighbors say they witnessed William playing with his little brother, Paul, by having him stand against the tree where he would throw darts at him. At just 10 years old, Bonin was arrested for the first time for stealing license plates and sent to a Connecticut juvenile detention center where he was sexually assaulted many times. It's said 
the older boys actually passed him around to one another. He was only 10 years old and had already lived a life of horrific abuse beyond comprehension. When he returned home, he began molesting his own brother. While the majority of those abused as children do not go on to abuse themselves, there's no doubt that it can be a learned behavior. An estimated 35% of those who molest or sexually assault were victims of sexual abuse themselves. This cycle of shifting roles is sometimes known as vampire syndrome. It is especially common in pedophiles who target boys. Abandonment issues are also said to be common with sexual predators. With young William, we see a perfect storm of violence, abandonment, and sexual abuse from a tragically young age. In 1960, William's father, Robert, was offered a job as a machinist in Torrance, California, and the family sold all their belongings and moved out west to sunny Southern California. William went to North High School. He was considered a social outcast and is said to have not had any friends. Self-conscious of his facial features, he refused to smile due to his misaligned teeth. His only true passion was bowling, which he loved. Completely unsupervised, he would spend entire nights at the rinks, which were open 24 hours. Sadly, he also began molesting boys in the neighborhood. His mother, Alice, began picking up on his homosexuality and, thinking it was a curable affliction, would constantly argue with him about it, trying to, quote-unquote, cure him. Still a practicing Catholic, she considered homosexuality a horrible sin and would later say she always, quote, rejected that side of him. Very sad, but unfortunately, it was a sign of the times. Alice insisted William date a girl, saying if he didn't, she'd kick him out of the house. So he starts dating a girl named Linda, though he states he never felt comfortable with her. But Bonin did sleep with Linda and got her pregnant. They were engaged, but it was a rocky relationship at best. Later, Linda would say she was unnerved when Bonin recounted a recurring nightmare he was plagued with. In this dark dream, Bonin explained to his fiancée he would go to a bar and go up to a woman who had no face. He'd buy this faceless woman a drink, then leave with her, taking her to a deserted place where he'd rape and murder her. He'd wake up shaking and in tears. Uh, yeah, I can see how your fiancé telling you this might be a bit unnerving. So creepy. Yes, absolutely. And uh, after another fight with his mother, during which he threw him out of the house, well, Bonin, he went and he joined the Air Force. It was 1965, and the Vietnam War was escalating daily, with large-scale combat operations like Rolling Thunder now fully underway. In this violent and tense atmosphere, Bonin shone. He served as an aerial gunner for the 205th Assault Support Helicopter Unit. Bonin spent his days firing a machine gun from a helicopter, giving air support and constantly under the risk of surface-to-air missiles and small arms fire. He logged in more than 700 hours of combat and patrol time and risked his life to save a fellow airman, earning himself a good conduct medal, among other decorations. But there was a definite dark side to his time in Vietnam. 
He reportedly sexually assaulted two soldiers under his command at gunpoint during the chaos of the Tet Offensive. Furthermore, his experiences in Vietnam instilled a belief within him that human life is overvalued and that humans generally overestimate their value in society. He later say that you, quote, learn life is cheap there. A telling quote, if I've ever heard one. <laughs> After nearly two years in the Air Force, he received an honorable discharge on October 25th, 1968, and at age 21 returned home, where he discovered that his fiance, who had given birth to their son, had left him to marry another man. The event reportedly left him frustrated and depressed. He returned to Downey to live with his parents and found work as a gas station attendant. In 1968, Bonin then began a vicious series of rapes, all committed on teenagers. In early November, he abducted a 14-year-old boy, offering him a ride in his mother's white Chevrolet station wagon. When William began pestering the young teen about whether he was a homosexual, the uncomfortable kid attempted to flee the vehicle. Bonin grabbed him violently by the testicles, handcuffed him, and raped him, threatening to kill him the entire time, before knocking him unconscious with a tire iron and dumping him on a park bench. Oh, good God. Just weeks later, he would do the same thing with a 17-year-old hitchhiker, this time using the threat of a handgun to help him subdue the youth. He would abduct and rape three more male youths as 1968 came to a close, one only 12 years old. And at this point, the cops are on the lookout for a serial rapist in a white station wagon. And on January 28th, a policewoman spies a car matching that description parked on a side road. She goes to the vehicle and discovers William about to rape a terrified 16-year-old runaway hitchhiker. Bonin wept as he was arrested and actually thanked the policewoman, saying if she hadn't stopped him, he was going to kill the teenager. He was indicted on five counts of kidnapping, four counts of sodomy, one count of oral copulation, and one count of child molestation. In March 1969, Bonin underwent two psychiatric examinations. He was determined to be a sexual psychopath who had little control over his impulses and showed signs of depression and inappropriate emotional responses. He was found to be, quote, seriously lacking insight and responsibility for crimes committed since his childhood. Bonin pleaded guilty to molestation and forced oral copulation and was sentenced to the Atascadero State Hospital in June 1969 as a mentally disordered sex offender considered amenable to treatment. Interestingly enough, Bonin was in the Atascadero State Hospital at the same time as infamous serial killer Edmund Kemper, who was there for murdering his grandmother and would soon be released to start his career as a murderer of young college girls in Santa Cruz. Oh, what a lovely pairing. I don't think they ever met. Oh, I would, yeah, it is. It, it's, it's just weird that they were there together at the same time. It's, what a time. What, what a... Yeah, dying to know if they ever did cross paths. That's just creepy. 
Okay. So during his psychiatric examinations, it was revealed that Bonin possessed a higher than average IQ of 121. Now, where have we heard that before? Freeway killer part one, nowhere near the 180 IQ of Patrick Kearney, but Bonin was no dummy. He was also said to display traits of manic depression, sexual sadism disorder, and antisocial personality disorder. Yeah, all three of these guys have have really high IQs. The next one, next week, we'll get into Randy Kraft. I mean, he was in, he was incredibly smart. It was, oh my god! <laughs> I know. It's, if they could be doing right, put, such put amazing your, things. Put your your high IQ to good instead of evil. Please, yes. Uh, a physical examination revealed the results of a life of abuse on his body. This is tough. There were extensive scars on Bonin's head and buttocks. It was noted his rectum had been torn repeatedly, and it was extremely distended, most likely from the, all the violent rape at a young age. And the frontal lobe of his brain, it actually had scars on it. and was shown to have experienced massive trauma as well. Okay, here we should note that nearly all serial killers are said to have suffered severe head injuries prior to their killing sprees. The frontal lobe is responsible for managing higher level executive functions, including controls over one's responses. So Bonin having visible trauma to this area of his brain may have contributed to him being somewhat physically unable to stop himself from acting out violent thoughts and fantasies. These professionals also noted the psychological and emotional implications of Bonin's unhealthy relationship with his domineering mother, upon whom he remained emotionally dependent in spite of her low opinion of him. Throughout Bonin's life, his mother would maintain her son was essentially, quote, worthless as a human being, unquote. Yet, he would continue to depend on her emotionally and seek her approval his entire life. Despite being originally diagnosed as amenable to therapy, in other words, that his deviancy was treatable, he soon proved that that was not the case. In group therapy sessions, Bonin would angrily deny his homosexuality, though he'd later come out as an openly gay man. He was also very aggressive toward the other patients. At one point in group therapy, he even said he would eliminate any future victims of his sexual assaults if he deemed it necessary. Mm, that's a red flag there. <laughs> Eventually, he was classified as an extreme sociopath with a high probability of recidivistic behavior under periods of psychotic breakdown. And his, quote, extremely disturbed, unquote, methods of social interaction with others were viewed as hindering his own treatment. He repeatedly engaged in sexual behavior with other inmates, some of whom were deemed mentally challenged. He was often in fights. And finally, he simply was declared unsuitable for further treatment. And in July of 1971, Bonin was sent to prison to finish his term. Basically, the psychiatrist just gave up, saying there was nothing they could do to help him. But Bonin was released from prison on June 11th, 1974, after it was concluded he was, quote, no longer a danger to the health and safety of others. How they came to that conclusion is a mystery, especially as psychiatrists at the hospital had deemed him untreatable. And as we'll see, he definitely was a danger to the health and safety of others, to put it quite mildly. <laughs> quite mildly, indeed. 
Bonin managed to keep himself in line for a year, during which he got an apartment, then lost it, before moving back in with his parents. He worked a couple jobs, always eventually getting fired, and briefly attended community college. He expressed an interest in joining the LGBTQ community and went to some gay bars. But basically, he was just too rude, crude, and immature to really fit in at all. And he felt alienated. And by September of 1975, he was back to his old ways, picking up a 14-year-old hitchhiker named David Allen McVicker, asking him if he was gay. Then, when the boy grew uncomfortable and asked to be dropped off, pulling a gun on him and raping him. This time, he added a new technique. He wrapped the boy's t-shirt around his neck, inserted a tire iron into it, and began to twist, slowly strangling him. This would become William Bonin's signature kill move, a ligature with the victim's own t-shirt, using a tire iron to tighten it. But in this instance, for some reason, when McVicker pleaded for his life, stating, God help me, Bonin immediately ceased his assault and actually apologized before reverting to casual conversation. Man. He then masturbated into a rag before driving McVicker to his home, stating on the way, you know what? You're an all right guy. I was going to kill you, but I want to come back for you and use you again. As McVicker was leaving Bonin's vehicle, Bonin locked eyes with him and said, We'll meet again. Oh, I just got goosebumps. So, so creepy. Totally, man. And then just two days later, Bonin picked up a 15-year-old hitchhiker, again asking him if he was gay, and this time offering the kid $35 for sex. The distraught teenager was able to get out of the vehicle, which sent Bonin into a rage. And he drove up onto the sidewalk, attempting to run the kid over. And obviously, this caused quite the scene, and he got arrested. But instead of crying this time, he told the police officer, next time there won't be any more witnesses. Oh, my God. Bonning pleaded guilty to both charges, and on December 31st, 1975, he was sentenced to serve between one and 15 years imprisonment at the California men's facility in San Luis Obispo. In prison, Bonin completed mathematics courses and over 2,400 hours of vocational training as a machinist in order to secure employment and showed significant progress in individual therapy sessions. As a result, Bonin was released from detention on October 11th 1978, with 18 months supervised probation. The criminal justice systems of the 1970s at work. Meanwhile, pot dealers were rotting away for decades for selling a plant. Just what the fuck? Out of prison and a free man yet again, Bonin got a job as a delivery driver. And eager to appear straight for his mother, he hooked up with a woman named Mary. She was a married mother who held a criminal record for child cruelty. Go figure. Birds of a feather. He spent every Sunday with her. It became a ritual. The two would go to church, then either roller skate or go bowling together. And it uh, makes you think like the, when you're bowling, 
turn around and look at the couple next year. All right. <laughs> Sorry. And in April 1979, Bonin's parole supervision concluded. He was a free man. He was free to do whatever he wished, completely unsupervised. Bonin moved to an apartment at the Kingswood Village Complex, about a mile from his parents' house, and started attending the parties of his 43-year-old neighbor and ex-bank officer, Everett Scott Frazier. Frazier and Bonin bonded over their love of having sex with teenage boys, and Bonin became a regular attendee at Frazier's parties, held almost every night of the week, where young men, drugs, and alcohol were rife. And it was at Frazier's parties that William Bonin met 21-year-old Vernon Robert Butts. This guy, what a character. Where to begin? Vernon Butts was a magician who'd perform at parties. He was also really into Star Wars cosplay. And remember, this is the late 70s, way before conventions and the cosplay lifestyle was a thing. There's many parts of this tale where this guy is in a full Darth Vader costume, which really makes this story surreal as hell. He was also supposedly into the occult, black magic, witchcraft, and obsessed with death. Oh, man, character indeed. His apartment, which he claimed was haunted, was lit with strobe lights and rubber spiders dangled from the ceiling. He also had two coffins, one of which was used as a phone booth and another as a coffee table. Butts would brag that he would make love to his girlfriend in these coffins. His girlfriend, Pam Katie Razouk, was a self-proclaimed witch with whom he attended pagan religious ritual events and did ceremonies in graveyards. For a while, Butts had been the magic store clerk at Knott's Berry Farm, but he was fired due to his unkept appearance and increasingly strange and unpredictable behavior. So Butts eked out a living performing magic acts at schools and children's parties in which he charged $30 per show to perform. Butts held an extensive criminal record for offenses such as burglary and arson and had been in and out of many penal institutions. It was later speculated by court prosecutors that in prison he had developed a fascination with sadistic homosexual activity. And while Butts was ostensibly straight, he and Bonin soon became closeted lovers. Butts also introduced Bonin to, wait for it, Dungeons and Dragons. Butts organized and advertised weekly gaming events at his residence. Butts also held mystery parties in which up to 16 people searched for various artifacts in the city of Downey to solve a mystery, such as a hairpin or an ice pick. And I just want to say cosplay, D&D, pagan rituals, mystery parties. This stuff is all cool as shit. And I just kind of hate it that this scumbag was so into all this cool stuff. And it's definitely an anomaly. You know, most of your D&D players are not like Vernon Butts. But it does lend an interesting air to this whole thing. Butts was quite the character as despicable as he turns out to be. And then one day out of the blue, Bonin asks Butts if he ever fantasized about picking up male teenage hitchhikers 
and raping them and killing them. No, normal thing. You'd ask your buddy, right? Oh my God. How, like, how do you even get into that conversation? But said no, he hadn't ever fantasized about that. But when Bonin asked him if he'd like to try it, Butts eagerly agreed, thinking it sounded fun. Fun. He thought it sounded fun. Just what the fuck? That doesn't sound fun. A mystery party sounds fun. D&D sounds fun. Abducting, raping, torturing, and murdering teenage hitchhikers. Not fun. Not fun at all. Come on, Butts. Fucking hell, man. You're so right. Like even the the you know the pagan rituals and the witchcraft and the creepy haunted apartment. Love all that cool. Shit. <laughs> right. Uh okay. So on July 19th, 1979, Bonham purchased a 1972 Ford E100 shorty van. He would call this his death van, saying, when someone enters, they don't go out alive. Bonin removed all inner handles from the passenger side and rear doors. He also stowed ligatures, knives, pliers, wire coat hangers, and other such instruments in his vehicle to facilitate the restraining and torture of his victims. Oh, God, that's basically like what I have nightmares about is ending up in a van like that. No door handles. This is a nightmare case. Tools everywhere. Oh, my God. Okay, so we've got the death van tricked out and the murders now begin. The two's first known murder was a 13-year-old, Thomas Glenn Lundgren. Lundgren had told friends a man had offered to meet him at a skateboard park to take photos of him for a skateboarding magazine. Just, I was a fucking skater kid at 13 and i would have easily fallen for this shitty ruse i just i hate these guys so much oh the boy's body clad only in a t-shirt shoes and socks was found the same afternoon he'd been beaten with a tire jack stabbed slashed across the throat and strangled to death most brutally his genitals had been ripped off they were found beside the body covered in bite marks, leading one to think they had been bitten off. And in fact, Bonin would later go on to savagely bite the genitals of other victims as well. And the killer was quickly assumed to be a gay man by profilers, which makes sense, right? But something that really irritates me was how his homosexuality was blamed by many for the crimes. An expert would later postulate that Bonin's brutality was likely an attempt to, quote, kill his homosexual attraction to Lundgren, further silencing his desire with each subsequent stabbing. How come you never hear Ted Bundy was trying to silence his heterosexuality with his killings? It's never postulated that the Green River Killer or BTK or even Jack the Ripper were killing because they were straight men. It's it's ridiculous, in my opinion, as well as bigoted. And as we stated last week, serial killers come from every culture and sadism has nothing to do with sexual orientation. Heterosexual serial killers is just as brutal as homosexual ones. Just take a look at the crimes of Ed Kemper, Richard Ramirez or even Jack the Ripper. So, so true. And I agree. It's complete 
bullshit that that came into play at all. Um, other so-called experts will point to the high victim count of gay serial killers like Dean Coral, John Wayne Gacy, and next week's freeway killer, Randy Kraft, pointing out that gay serial killers are much more prolific. But this is undoubtedly because of law enforcement failure. During Dean Kroll and John Wayne Gacy's murder sprees, police reported the missing as runaways and failed to investigate. While during the freeway killer's reign of mayhem, police often didn't investigate simply because the victims were gay. Gay men are often considered to be the less dead by police. And we can see no better example of this than when one of Jeffrey Dahmer's victims managed to escape in a drugged and dazed condition and was actually handed back over to Dahmer by the police, who then radioed their blatant homophobia to the station, saying they needed to be deloused after dealing with two male lovers. Yeah, it seems to me that sex murderers like this, they kill what they love. They kill what they're attracted to, what they desire, but can't have. You know, for instance, Ted Bundy, he was attracted to college age brunettes with their hair parted in the middle. So he killed them. Jeffrey Dahmer, he was attracted to muscular men with dark complexions. So he killed them. It's kind of like what Hannibal Lecter tells Clarice Starling in Silence of the Lambs. They're killing what they covet. And what do we covet, Clarice? We covet what we see every day. Nice. <laughs> All right. So what is undeniable is that William Bonin was a savagely sadistic killer. Also, that some of these murders that William Bonin and Vernon Butts committed together are just utterly bizarre. For instance, they picked up Hitchhiker in August of 1979, just a 17-year-old kid. They offered him $400 to have sex with them, and he agreed. What followed is not only savage and barbaric, but also utterly surreal. It's, yeah, first, as Bonin is driving, Butts begins to fondle the kid, but Butts starts squeezing him hard, grabbing his genitals and causing him to scream out in pain. And then, in a panic, the kid tries to flee from the moving van, just trying to get the fuck out of there. So to calm the kid down, Vernon Butts starts showing him magic tricks. It's so weird. Magic tricks. Vernon is doing magic tricks to calm this kid down in the back of Bonin's death van. And we're yet. Evidently, it worked. The kid liked the magic tricks and totally relaxed. So Butts begins to perform oral sex on him as a means to further ease his tension. But then Bonin parks the van, leaps into the back, and goes into a sadistic rage. He beats the boy, rapes him kneels on his face until he passes out, then begins strangling him with his T-shirt. He brings him right to the point of death before releasing his garret and bringing him back to consciousness, then starts strangling him again, over and over, all while violating him with a stick. And the poor kid, his body went into such a state of shock that he died. He actually died of the shock which greatly irritated Bonin as he wasn't done with him. They just tossed him out onto the road, the stick still inside of him. Oh, good God. And interestingly enough, homicide detectives would ask Patrick Kearney if he had committed this crime. Kearney was appalled. 
Kearney was appalled. <laughs> totally. Well, you know, Kearney freely admitted to shooting young men in the head and having sex with their corpses. But, oh, he'd never torture someone or leave a body on the freeway with a stick protruding from it. He found that repulsive. He washed the bodies and cared for them before dismembering them and putting them in garbage bags. That he would somehow find this acceptable it has to reveal something about the mentality of people like this, but at this point, I honestly have no clue what that might be. They're an enigma in so many ways, and the contradictions between the two really displays this. And the next day, the very next day, Bonin and Butts abducted a 17-year-old West German exchange student. This kid, he put up a fight, and Bonin ended up stabbing him 77 times. 77 brutal and insane overkill one investigator likening the injuries inflicted upon the victim to that of a rabid dog unable to determine when to cease biting by this period bonin had returned to his parents house where he gradually developed a reputation as a child molester among local residents due to his habit of inviting young boys into the household Occasionally, as his mother, younger brother, and others were present, luring them with the promise of beer and pornography. Yeah, Bonin was that guy in the late 70s with the handlebar mustache who invited teenagers to his mom's house to drink beer and watch porn. Fuck, such a disgusting creep. It, it kind of makes my stomach churn. Some neighbors even said they would later hear screaming and crying once inside. And to think I've had the neighbors call the cops on me for simply playing music too loud. Yeah, definitely, like you said, sign of the times. But in early 1979, Bonin does manage to get himself arrested for molesting a 17-year-old boy. This violation of the conditions of his parole should have resulted in Bonin being returned to prison. However, an administrative error resulted in his release. Can you believe that shit? An administrative error. How many times are they going to let this monster go? So Bonin has his buddy Everett Frazier pick him up from the Orange County Jail. And as they're driving, Bonin tells him, no one's going to testify again. This is never going to happen to me again. Oh, Frazier claims he thought Bonin was saying he was going to change his ways and stop molesting young boys, but in hindsight realizes he meant he was going to murder them to keep them silent. Bonin, he didn't even bother to appear for his court appointment, but he went right on with his murder spree. Bonin and Butts continued to abduct, torture, and kill teenage boys, growing extremely dark. And, I mean, insane dark. Butts now performing oral sex on the corpses, which, I mean, I don't know. I don't even know what to say about the thought of this guy giving a blowjob to a dead body. It's incomprehensible on multiple levels. I mean, this is the kind of thing you think you do to someone you love that you wanted to give pleasure to, but they're fucking dead. And also... You know what? I'm not even going to get into it. Just nope. That's it. Just a big old <laughs> nope. Nope, 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 yeah. nope. 
Uh, the two also added an ice pick to their crimes, stabbing victims up the nostrils and through the ear. With another victim, while Bonin repeatedly strangled him with a t-shirt and tire iron, he asked if he knew why he had to die. When the terrified victim, now revived, said no, and asked why did he have to die, Bonin told him, well, your folks paid us to find you and kill you. So the kid's last thought was that his parents were somehow behind this horrible murder. Bonin then strangled the youth before inserting an ice pick into his nostrils and right ear. He's just beyond a piece of shit. So far beyond. The cruelty, it just it makes your head spin. It goes like so far beyond the ability to comprehend like it almost like stops. I mean, of course, it doesn't stop creeping me out, but like it almost does because numbs you. It's just right. It's like so much you can't even fathom. Yeah. Ugh. So during this time, Bonin killed alone as well, but he also recruited others to help him. He later told a psychologist he attained a sense of social belonging with his accomplices during murder that he had never previously experienced with any other individuals. And that he considered murder a, quote, group sport. So Bonin starts palling around with Greg Miley, an illiterate Texas native and high school dropout with an IQ of 56. He viewed Bonin as something of a father figure and often accompanied Bonin, against his mother's wishes, by the way, to watch movies. Bonin would take him out on the town, buy him clothes, take him to restaurants, all, of course, in exchange for sex. On February 3rd, 1980, Bonin convinced Miley to go kill with him. They picked up 15-year-old Charles Miranda, hitchhiking along Santa Monica Boulevard. Bonin tied the teenager up, gagged him, robbed him, beat him, and raped him. Miley tried to rape him as well, but wasn't able to perform. So he began to assault and stab him. Then, while Bonin strangled him with a t-shirt and tire iron, Miley jumped up and down on his chest. They dumped his body in an alley on East 2nd Street in Los Angeles. Just five minutes after the pair had discarded Miranda's body, Bonin turned to his accomplice, Miley, and said, I'm horny again. Let's go and do another. So they abducted a 12-year-old boy on his way to Disneyland. They did their thing, then tossed him out by a dumpster at a construction site. This really is like truth is stranger than fiction. Truth is grosser. Truth is more horrific than fiction because, I mean, we're horror writers, you and I. <laughs> we know a lot of horror writers. We read a lot of horror books. Like, only the most extreme splatterpunk writers are even penning shit like this. This is just you can't. People, people wouldn't believe a lot of it. You know exactly. I mean? Like it's uh, right. It's so over the top. It's just like, are you just? Yeah. <sighs> Truth is stranger and yeah, darker than fiction. That's for sure. That should be our unofficial tagline. Ooh, the I truth like that. is where the truth <laughs> is more horrific than fiction. Okay, so in March 1980, Bonin met 17-year-old William Ray Pooh at a party at Fraser's apartment. He offered the teenager a ride home, intending to kill him. 
but realizing there were witnesses who had seen the two leaving together. He instead decided to confide to Pooh that he liked to torture and kill hitchhikers on Friday and Saturday nights, but was always busy on Sundays, as that's when he went roller skating with his girlfriend. He asked Pooh if he'd like to go out and kill a hitchhiker sometime, and Pooh readily agreed. What the fuck is going on? I just don't get it. So, on March 25th, 1980, Bonin and Pooh abducted 15-year-old runaway Harry Todd Turner from a Los Angeles street. Bonin tied him up and raped him, then savagely bit his penis, tearing into the flesh with his teeth till it was torn and bleeding before strangling him to death and tossing him in an alley in downtown Los Angeles. Fuck, man. Just what really boggles the mind is how many times this guy has already been in and out of prison and mental institutions. Bonin continued to kill alone as well, often bragging of the kills to Butts, showing him newspaper articles about his kills he'd clipped and begun to keep in a scrapbook. Once he even brought a victim to Butts' apartment. Yep. On April 29th, Bonin encountered 19-year-old supermarket employee Darren Kendrick while parked at the Stanton supermarket where Kendrick worked. Bonin lured Kendrick into his van, offering to sell him some weed. Bonin then drove to Butt's apartment, where the trio began listening to music as they sat on the couch. When Bonin asked Kendrick whether he was gay, Kendrick attempted to flee. But Bonin and Butts overpowered him, bound him, and as Butts sodomized him, Bonin cranked up the volume of Butts' sound system to cover Kendrick's screams. Butts then held Kendrick's mouth open while Bonin poured chloral hydrate down his throat, causing Kendrick to sustain caustic chemical burns to his mouth, chin, stomach, and chest. Uh, (laughs) Yes. Bonin then strangled Kendrick as Butts drove an ice pick into his ear, causing a fatal wound to the youth's spinal cord. His body was discarded behind a warehouse close to the Artesia Freeway, with the ice pick still protruding from his ear. They're targeting innocent potheads and skateboarders. That's like me, you know, I fucking hate these guys. I also want to note that Metallica frontman, James Hetfield, he lived in the same little town where these guys were. And he was a teenager at the time of these killings. So if he'd been hitchhiking or crossed these scumbags path in some way, he would easily have been one of their victims. Just like imagine a world without master of puppets. I mean, that may sound like a joke. It may sound stupid, but I'm fucking serious. We'll never know what these victims may have accomplished. It's so fucking sad. And that's so true. Like there's so many lives taken that absolutely one, if not multiple, if not all of them could have gone on to do great things. So young. While Bonin would dutifully put on his straight mask for his mother, taking his girlfriend to church and bowling every Sunday, he was basically out and living as an openly gay man at this point. He'd even say to his neighbor, this freeway killer is making us good gays look bad. And you know, just... Fuck, take that statement as you will. You could probably use it to justify anything psychologically, but to me, I just think he's a fucking jerk. 
plain and simple. Yeah, it kind of for me, it kind of goes a long way beyond like, like when you, I mean, of course, I feel bad for the abuse that he suffered. But then when you try to pin at least some of it onto that frontal lobe damage that he had suffered and that he couldn't control himself, like all of this extra shit kind of like takes a lot of that out of off the table for me. He's a fucking asshole. You know, you feel sympathy for the child, but you, you hate the, the killer. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so for a while, Bonin did attempt a gay romantic partnership, similar to that of Patrick Kearney and David Hill, with one Lawrence Sharp. He had Lawrence Sharp move in with him, and the two shared domestic duties and lived as a couple. But then one day, Bonin woke up and decided he was tired of Lawrence. Unlike Patrick Kearney, who was extremely codependent, and terrified of rejection and clung to his lover, often killing when the two would argue or when Hill would briefly leave him. On May 12th, 1980, Bonin said he was simply, quote, tired of having him around. So he strangled him to death and dumped his body behind a gas station. You know, it's interesting that Patrick Kearney kept his killing a secret and told no one, yet maintained a deep emotional relationship with his partner for nearly two decades. While William Bonin told all kinds of people about his murderous ways, enticing them to join him. Yet, when it came to a domestic partnership and true intimacy, he wasn't able to maintain a relationship. Right. They say codependency, which is basically an excessive reliance on another for identity and emotional well-being. They say codependency can be a sign of immaturity. But isn't it even more immature to not be able to maintain any kind of relationship at all. I mean, both these guys are fucking monsters, but it's just so interesting how deeply different they are psychologically. Yeah, absolutely. By early 1980, the murders committed by Bonin and his accomplices were receiving considerable media attention and a reward totaling $50,000 for information leading to the conviction of the freeway killer had been offered by leading gay rights activists. The utterly remorseless Bonin avidly followed the news media reports of his crimes and collected newspaper clippings documenting his own manhunt, often tuning in to radio and television coverage of the murders. Yet another thing that makes me like dislike this person <laughs> so thoroughly. By May 1980, the end of Bonin's reign of terror was coming. His one-time accomplice, William Ray Pooh, had been arrested for stealing a car, and was at the Los Padrinos Juvenile Courthouse when he overheard the details of the ongoing murder investigation on a local radio broadcast, including the reward being offered. Thinking this may be his ticket to freedom, he told a counselor he suspected he knew who the freeway killer was, obviously neglecting to tell him that he'd been along on one of the murders and actually assisted. How Pooh thought this was going to work out for him is a mystery. He's obviously not the sharpest tool in the shed. He's obviously not the sharpest tool in the death van. (laughs) This counselor counselor reported Pooh's statements to the police, who in turn relayed the information to Homicide Sergeant John St. John, who immediately interviewed Pooh. Although Pooh withheld the fact that he had accompanied Bonin on one of his murders, the information he provided led St. John to deduce that Bonin might be the freeway killer. And he began to investigate. The same day Pooh was ratting him out to the cops, Bonin invited 18-year-old runaway 
James Michael Monroe to move into the Angel Street home he was sharing with his mother and older brother, saying he could pay his share of the rent with some sex. Monroe was more or less straight, saying he much preferred to be with females, but he had been making a living as a male prostitute in Hollywood, so he was not averse to this idea at all. Obviously, it's better than living on the cold, hard streets where he'd already been robbed. So he readily agreed to the proposition and moved in. Bonin also got him a job at the Montebello delivery firm where he was working. Monroe later described his impression of Bonin as, quote, a good guy, really normal, end quote. <laughs> really normal. Yeah. On June 1st, Bonin took Monroe roller skating with his girlfriend before abruptly informing Monroe that he wanted them to abduct, sexually assault, and murder a teenage hitchhiker. And Monroe was like, sure, let's do it. Where does he find these people? Are there still people like this fucking out there that you can just go up to him and say, hey, I'm a really normal, good guy. Want to abduct, torture, and kill some teenage hitchhikers tonight? This has to be one of those examples of like, like, like energy pulling in like energy, like, you know, right, you know, like right. people that are actively, you know, engaged in substance abuse, find somebody to go on a run with people that are in recovery, usually mm -hmm. find each other like abusers can find the energy. Oh, that's more of like an opposites attract kind of thing. But it's like, it's just kind of one of those examples of just like the energy that you're putting out there and that you want to get back is like actually working for you. It's crazy. Something to be something to that manifestation. Yeah. It's also interesting that he like tried to go to gay bars and like hang out in the gay scene and just he couldn't fucking fit in there. Cause yeah, with probably normal people who were like excited right. that there was, you know, actually places for them to go now. And, and, you know, we talked in the last episode about, gay men were moving to California because there was a lot more acceptance there. And I'm sure he put out energy where people were just like, you know, good, normal people were like, no, thanks, bro. Unfortunately, uh, next week with uh, Randy Kraft, we're going to see the opposite of because he was a social butterfly in the gay community. And he was and he's probably the worst out of all three of these guys. Uh, well, I guess I'm still sticking by my theory, but some people are better actors than others. So maybe he yeah. was putting out that energy and acting charming right on top of it. Yeah, it's all a mask, man. They're like cold, empty people who have learned the mask that society wants to see, you know, learned it early. Uh, so... So on June 2nd, the two go out and pick up 18-year-old print shop worker Stephen J. Wells, who's waiting for a bus on El Segundo Boulevard. Bonin and Monroe convince him to get in the van. According to Bonin and Monroe, upon learning Wells was bisexual, Bonin engaged in consensual sex with Wells in the rear of the van. Then they decided to take the party back to Bonin's parents' house, where they had sex in Bonin's mom's bed. Fucking such an asshole. I mean, his mom, uh, she's basically a piece of shit, right? But dude, fucking some guy in her bed is such a slap in the face. And we could get all psychological here, bring Freud into it. I don't even think he deserves that deep of introspection. Like I said before, he's just a fucking jerk, plain and simple. <sighs> Bonin tells the kid he'll give him 200 bucks if he lets him tie him up with some clothesline. And the kid stupidly agrees. 
But once he's bound, he begins to suspect something and grows frantic. Bonin supposedly started laughing and then stole $10 from the kid's wallet before strangling him to death with his own t-shirt. Monroe just watched, then asked whether Wells was dead, prompting Bonin to laugh as he replied, Yeah, stupid. Haven't you ever seen a dead body before? Uh, they crammed the body into a large cardboard box and hauled it out to the van and then drove on over to Vernon Butt's place to show off their deed. Vernon was dressed in a full-on Darth Vader outfit, complete with a plastic lightsaber. Bonin told him about the body in the van, saying, quote, We got it in the van. It's a good one. Come on out and see it. End quote. Mm, so... The three men, they go on out to the van to look at the body, Vernon prodding it with what I suppose at least was his lightsaber, saying, good job, Billy. You really did a good one. Just this fucking scene, man. Vernon dressed like Darth Vader, checking out this corpse of this poor kid. and This guy, Monroe, totally new to the whole scene. And he's just like going along with it all fucking normal day in sunny southern california just what the hell is going on i know southern california was like a really wild place in the late 70s and early 80s but fuck man you know this really it, it just takes the cake i can't even imagine <sighs> meanwhile the police investigation into bonin's background revealed his extensive history of convictions for sexually assaulting teenage boys so, homicide detective St. John assigns a surveillance team to monitor Bonin's movements. The surveillance of Bonin was ordered, get this, just one hour before Bonin and Monroe went and dumped the body of Stephen Wells behind a gas station. Mm. So, on June 11th, 1980, police are tailing Bonin as he cruises through Hollywood, stopping five separate times to try and coax teenage boys into his death van. They watch as he's finally able to get a 17-year-old runaway, Harold Tate, to hop into the van. Cops follow them as they park in a desolate parking lot by the Hollywood freeway. And then the cops just sit there and watch as the van begins rocking and screaming and banging can be heard. And at some point, they finally approach the vehicle and throw open the door to see Bonin raping this poor kid who was bound, handcuffed, and screaming. And I wonder, if Bonin had been a straight serial killer, and it was a girl, a young girl he had picked up and had in that van with him, would the cops have waited so fucking long? I mean, they basically let this kid, a minor, no less, only 17, get raped and just, just about killed. I mean, there's no doubt Bonin was a going to strangle him any minute i mean in my opinion this is really fucked up you know i wonder and you gotta wonder if if bonin had been killing women instead of men would they have let him get this far with the victim and would they have already found him would they have never let him out of prison to fucking begin with yeah that's that's the probably the point right there regardless they they got him right in the act and the death van was full of evidence. Fibers, blood, other bodily fluids, torture devices, and in the glove box, a scrapbook of newspaper clippings about all the crimes. 
Though obviously guilty, beyond belief, at first Bonin refuses to cooperate and claims he's an innocent man. But then Detective St. John slips him a note that's supposedly written by a victim's mother, begging to know where the body of her son was. And then Bonin starts talking. The note, it was a fake. It was written by the detectives, hoping it would get him to confess to show them where the body of the missing youth was. But Bonin, he later said that note had no effect on him at all, which of course it didn't. He was a remorseless monster. He didn't give a fuck about his victim's mothers. Bonin said he was simply hungry and craving a hamburger, and he knew they'd take him to get one if he took them out to San Bernardino where the body was stashed. Bonin said, quote, I was dying for a hamburger, and I knew if I went out with the cops, they'd get me a hamburger. <laughs> Bonin confessed to abducting, raping, and killing 21 young men and boys in incredibly graphic detail. District Attorney Norris said listening to his confession was like sitting in a room of horror. And everyone in the room was stunned by the lack of emotion or compassion in his detailed confession. Orange County investigator Jim Sidebotham recalling how he struggled not to vomit. Bonin also readily threw his accomplices under the bus, ratting out Vernon Butts, Greg Miley, and Monroe. No surprise there. <laughs> right. Bonin was charged with 14 counts of murder, 11 counts of robbery, plus one count each of sodomy and mayhem. On July 25th, police raided 22-year-old Vernon Butts' apartment, finding evidence of at least one murder. Butts claimed Bonin had hypnotized him into being an accomplice and described the murder spree as, and I quote, a good little nightmare. Ugh. He was charged as an accomplice in nine of the murders. James Monroe, sensing the boot was dropping, steals Bonin's car and heads back to his home state of Michigan but the police are able to round him up about a month later. Gregory Miley fled too, back to his hometown of Houston, Texas, and they were able to track him down and arrest him on August 22nd, 1980. With an IQ of only 56, it wasn't hard for detectives to get Miley to confess to his role in two of the murders. <sighs> but while police are celebrating that they'd caught the second freeway killer and were congratulating themselves, Bonin was amused. He followed the news closely. He knew that many, many of the young men and boys who had gone missing or turned up dead had nothing to do with him at all. He may have been a freeway killer, but he wasn't the only one. There was another one out there, and he knew the bodies of young men amassing on the freeways of Southern California wasn't going to end anytime soon. In an interview with CBS television reporter David Lopez, Bonin said it got easier with each one and he couldn't stop and would still be killing if he was out when asked why he killed he said he didn't know that he just quote liked the sounds of kids dying Oof. in january 1981 before his testimony could be used in a trial vernon butts committed suicide by hanging himself with a towel in his cell a subsequent coroner's investigation revealed Butts had unsuccessfully attempted to take his own life on at least four occasions prior to his arrest. 
though his lawyer says he believes he was murdered. Both Miley and Monroe agreed to testify against Bonin at his impending trial in exchange for being spared the death penalty. Bonin was convicted of 10 first-degree murders and given the death penalty. Superior Court Judge William B. Keene saying his crimes were sadistic, unbelievably cruel, senseless, and deliberately premeditated, a revolting affront to human dignity, end quote. And he is right. In his years on death row, Bonin undertook painting and writing as a hobby. He wrote a series of short stories called Doing Time, Stories from the Mind of a Death Row Prisoner. And 50 copies were initially printed and published at 13 bucks a copy. And uh, just out of morbid curiosity, I did try to find copies of this book for sale or even see if there was a PDF somewhere I could read or a Kindle version. Nothing. It is listed on Amazon and Goodreads, but there are no reviews there. It simply states out of print. But I did find one review on Google Books. It was anonymous and sadly five stars saying simply, great book. I loved it. He also held hopes of publishing a science fiction novel. Over the years, Bonin received several minor awards for his artwork, short stories, and poems. Oh, good grief. I mean, I guess this gives cadence to our previous comment of you use your evil for good. I mean, maybe he could have been an artist. Loved oh, this the sound of loved the sound of paintbrushes scraping the <laughs> canvas instead of children dying or right, uh, right, right. Uh Bonin also corresponded with the mothers of some of his victims, although he never expressed any regret or remorse over having murdered their sons and purposefully withheld information his victims' families sought. In fact, it appears he enjoyed mentally torturing the victims' families. On one occasion, Bonin informed the mother of victim Sean King that her son had been his favorite victim as, quote, he was such a screamer. Such a fucking asshole, man. Shortly after getting to San Quentin State Prison, Bonin became close friends with serial killer Lawrence Bittaker. Bittaker, whose nickname was Pliers, because that's what he used to torture his victims with, was one of the horrendous toolbox murderers. And they'd been locked up before together in Los Angeles County Jail. Bittaker, he also had a death van, just like Bonin. And... He had an accomplice, and together they would abduct teenagers off the street to torture, rape, and kill. I mean, it was like exactly the same, only he did it to women, not men. And it's funny how no one blamed these crimes on him being a heterosexual, as they had blamed Bonin's crimes on him being gay. Uh, ridiculous double standard. Monsters are monsters. And when the last of the freeway killers, Randy Kraft, whom we'll be covering next week, was eventually captured and put on death row as well, Bonin became pals with him, too. They'd play bridge together daily, for hours, often with Sunset Strip killer Douglas Clark joining in. It's fucking insane, right? It's just these fucking serial killers in prison together, all playing bridge every day. <laughs> Jesus Christ. I know, right? And Bonin never expressed any remorse or sympathy for his victims. And he said 
his only regret, the only regret that he had in life was never pursuing his love of bowling. Oh, my God. <laughs> yes, bowling. He truly believed in his heart. He could have gone on to be a pro if he had just stuck with it. His only regret. Uh, Bonin would explain his urge to kill to a prison psychologist like this. Quote, sometimes I'd get tense and think I was going to go crazy if I couldn't get some release. Like my head would explode. So I'd go out hunting. Killing helped me. It was like needing to go gambling or getting drunk. I had to do it. End quote. I just noticed this, you know, needing to go gambling or getting drunk. That's that's his parents right there. That's what they all did. Yeah, wow. While waiting for his execution, this California Supreme Court found the gas chamber to be a form of cruel and unusual punishment after the execution of Robert Alton Harris, and they outlawed it in 1992. But Bonin was not off the hook, for California decided on a new form of execution, Lethal injection. William George Bonin would be the first prisoner executed by lethal injection in the state of California on February 23rd, 1996, 14 years after his death sentence had been imposed. You know, oddly enough, prison guard Ben Aronoff, he hugged Bonin and told him he loved him more than anyone he'd ever loved in his life. Which, really? I don't get it. But a lot of people actually came forward defending Bonin, placing blame on his horrendous upbringing and the brain injuries he'd received while being abused as a child. In a rebuttal to those defending Bonin, Rob Morse of the San Francisco Chronicle wrote an editorial saying, quote, The world is filled with articulate people who can write and paint and were abused as children. Very few of them become serial killers. Very few become evil. To call Bonin's evil a psychiatric disorder, as the defense has, is to slander the mentally ill. The crime rate among the diagnosed mentally ill is lower than among so-called normal people. Serial murders like Bonin seem normal, except when they're killing people. It's best to call it evil. End quote. At 11.45 p.m., February 22nd, 1996, After a last meal of pepperoni pizza, coffee ice cream, and Coca-Cola, Bonin was walked from his holding cell to the execution chamber of San Quentin Prison, where he was strapped down to a gurney. In some ways, not unlike the way he himself had strapped his innocent victims down. It took eight minutes for technicians to find a vein for the IV. First, He was given a dose of sodium pentothal, which rendered him unconscious within seconds. Then he was given pancaronium bromide, which paralyzed his muscles and made it impossible to breathe. Finally, he was administered potassium chloride, which instantly stopped his heart. His face turned purple, his chest heaved, and at 12.13 a.m., William Bonin was pronounced dead. He was 49 years old. None of his family members attended the execution and no one came to claim the body, which was eventually cremated. And that's that's it. 
That's the life and death of William Bonin, the second of the notorious freeway killers. Woo-wee, damn. What a doozy. Um, what strikes me is just what a short amount of time these murders co- were committed in. I mean, William Bonin confessed to 21 murders. And while Patrick Kearney confessed to killing 28 people, he had done it over the course of 15 years. So, you know, while Bonin had done it in just 13 months, starting in May of 1979, ending of June of 1980, basically just one year. Of course, Kearney probably killed a whole lot more. He never confessed to his Mexico killings. But still, I mean, it does one lead one to wonder whether those injuries to Bonin's frontal lobe could be somehow to blame. I mean, if not for the murders themselves, then just for the frequency of them. I mean, he was just out of control, going at it and bragging and recruiting accomplices the whole time. Yeah, I mean, I know I said before, like the energy thing, like you're you're putting out into the universe some (laughs) crazy, awful energy and people are picking up on it. But like, I mean, it's still I'm almost saying that as like a way to try to wrap my mind around it. Like, it's just it's crazy that he, like you said, like, who are they? Like, if you or I just like walked into the library and you were like, hey, you want to go murder? So like, it's kind of scary. <laughs> like, how many people would answer yes to that? Like, that's terrifying how he managed to just ask these people that. And Person after person after person. And they're all like, sure. And no one goes to the cops. Just crazy. Just crazy. And you know, that neighbor had to know, you know, he's like going, oh, stop the screaming over there stop (laughs) the stop the sounds of sadistic torture and let me get some rest get off my lawn (laughs) oh my goodness so what do we got next week next week we have randy craft and uh he is really the worst of all of them (laughs) but then we're gonna switch to something more spooky i promise i got a good old-fashioned haunting story chock full of ghosts it's gonna be fun as hell because these guys are too much i tell you but again big thanks to stacy roy stark for requesting the series as gruesome and disgusting as it's been it's it's (laughs) been a real eye-opener it's really interesting and uh of course if any of you out there have a request a comment you just want to say hi send us an email to murder coaster podcast at murder podcast at gmail.com that's murder coaster podcast at gmail.com thank you so much for listening dear listeners and fellow freaks we will see you next week <laughs>